All right, we want to welcome you tonight as we uh, continue our look at how to read and understand the Bible. And uh, we're going to start off here in just a moment with another group exercise. So uh, hopefully you brought your Bibles so you can uh, check the context if we, as we uh, talked about last week. But just a couple of uh, quick announcements. want to remind you to always be sure and uh, check out the Not By Works website. Always uh, new stuff going up there. Yesterday we posted a podcast uh, that was recorded yesterday morning uh, that was a theological Q&A on Christian Underground News Network. So if you like that kind of stuff, some interesting questions in there. And uh, so that's posted at any uh, of our podcast uh, providers, uh, any, any of your favorite podcast providers, just search for Not By Works Ministries, or you can get to it from our website. Don't forget on the website, we still have the What in the World is Going On series. I'm still fielding emails from that every day from people with questions and uh, wanting to dialogue about it. Uh, uh, recorded a podcast today that someone uh, invited me on who had listened to Stand Up for the Truth, and uh, when I was on there, and then they reached out. It's called Empty Tomb, and anyway, it's not posted yet. They're still doing post production, but we talked a lot about the stuff that was in uh, in this uh, series. So check that out. It's free. It's available. All eight videos. Spread the word uh, about that. So uh, tonight we're going to continue uh, our study of of uh, what we call Bible study methods, or how to read and understand the Bible. And uh, last week, I started something that I want to kind of make a recurring uh, thing each week to just kind of get our juices flowing and get us thinking in terms of how to, to really take what the Bible says and understand it correctly rather than just quickly and hastily arriving at some conclusion based on a narrow um, context. So the focal passage is, is from Matthew 18. You're probably very familiar uh, with this uh, passage. We often hear it quoted in the context of prayer. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So how many times... Have you heard someone say, especially that second verse there, uh, in the context of prayer, they'll maybe, you know, grab hands, pray about uh, a certain issue or a need or a burden, uh, and then when they're done, they'll say, you know, where two or three are gathered, Jesus promised, right? Uh, certainly nothing wrong with praying for somebody and praying together. That's We see many examples of that uh, throughout uh, Scripture. And uh, so what do you think this means? Again, uh, a lot of you I can see are already looking it up in your Bibles to see the context, but how many of you have heard it cited in the manner I just talked about? Lots of times, right? I have. Probably cited it that way myself or early or in my, uh, in my ministry. So what do you think this means? So the, co the uh, comment was that as long as it's the Father's will, and there's definitely a, a connection here to um, God in heaven, Jesus referring to his Father, and certainly we know that God's will cannot be contravened, it cannot be stopped, God's sovereign, so nobody can uh, stop God's will. Um, but what are they talking about in terms of 
two of you agree on earth. And who, first of all, you see pronouns there. I say to you, if two of you, well, whenever you see a pronoun, you should probably kind of look, it should automatically make you uh, inquire about the context. Who's he speaking to, right? So we tend to read the Bible here uh, and in, in many places as if it was written specifically to me, right? So we see the pronoun you and Oh, it's talking about me. If me and, and Jeffrey or me and anybody else I'm with agree on earth. But, but the Bible, as with all literature, was written in a context and has to be understood in its context. And so, uh, what else? Anybody else have? Yeah, Jeff. So the context is that, that you don't want to just be throwing insults at people or blaming people unless there's more than one witness. So the, the, uh, the, the number two is Okay, so again, for those of you that are listening to the recording of this, I'm going to repeat the comments, and so I know it's, it's frustrating if you're driving along in your car and you're hearing me and all of a sudden someone speaks and there's 30 seconds of what you can't really hear. I apologize for that, but I will always repeat the comments, and Jeff pointed out he's connecting verses 15 and 16 here where it talks about two or three witnesses with the reference to two or three uh, gather together in my name. So that's, uh, I'll come back to that. I'm going to just kind of keep giving you guys some rope, and uh, then I'll hang you with it here in a minute. But anyway, yeah. Well, kind of as a spin off of that, too, the subtitle in my Bible says church discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was going to be my, so Paul said the context is in church discipline. So that was going to be my next question. What's the overall, you know, context in this passage? What are we talking about here? And it's not technically church discipline because the church didn't exist yet. Uh, but uh, a lot of Bibles are going to, you know, give it that heading. But the word uh, church there just means assembly. At the time, it was talking about the synagogues. Uh, the church was not formed until after the death and resurrection of Christ on the day of Pentecost. In fact, just previous to this passage in Matthew 16, Jesus had told the disciples that he said, I will build my church in the future. So it hadn't happened yet. Uh, but nevertheless, the principles of discipline here that Jesus is giving in his day are very good principles that should be applied in the church age. But it's not strictly speaking church discipline because there was no church. The church didn't exist yet and didn't. it was a mystery. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that the church is a mystery, meaning previously undisclosed uh, revelation. So Jesus can't be addressing something that had not been divinely revealed yet. Um, but uh, let's take a look at the context and, and kind of walk our, our, our way through this uh, passage. So Jesus is speaking up here about conflict. That much is for sure. Moreover, if a brother sins against you and you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, if he hears you, you've gained your brother great principle. Most churches today cite this passage as a, a rule of thumb on how to deal with discipline, how to deal with conflict in the church. And certainly if you've got a problem with someone, 
You need to go to that person first. That's a good principle. And that's what Jesus was saying here. And hopefully that'll be the end of it. You'll work it out. But it says, if he goes on, if he will not hear, this is Matthew 18, 15 and 16, then take with you one or two more. And then here he quotes the Old Testament. And it was very common Old Testament law, as Jeff referred to a moment ago. We see this, for example, in Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19. Um, he says that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So, again, this is still in the context of conflict among brothers. Um, and if you go to the brother or sister and it's not resolved, then you, you know it's going to escalate. So whenever you're anticipating trouble, you want to take some witnesses just so that you can make sure that you don't get into a he said, she said, or someone falsely accusing you. Well, he came and he was belligerent or he punched me in the nose. And, you know, you want, you want some witnesses there. And this is Old Testament law. It was very common. And this was still in the age of the law. The Jews were still under the law. So Jesus is simply citing common uh, practice. And as a side note, by the way, once we get into the church age, we see in the book of Acts frequent examples of where the apostles, when anticipating conflict or dealing with difficult situations, always took multiple people with them. That's just a good rule of thumb, right? Uh, a lot of times our tendency is to try to deal with things one-on-one. -on -one. That's fine at, up to a certain level, but if the problem escalates and you're you're really having to have multiple meetings. You really need to think about having someone there just to be a witness. So that's the context. And then uh, we read on. Uh, Jesus continues, if he refuses to hear them, that is, you've brought two or three witnesses with you and he still refuses, tell it to the church. Again, that's the English translation here uh, of the assembly. There was no church the way we think of the church today that didn't get established until, um, you know, sometime after this, after the day of Pentecost. So he's saying, tell it to the assembly, if you will. And then he says, but if he refuses even to hear the assembly, the church, let him be like a heathen and a tax collector. Uh, heathen there is the Greek word ethnikos, meaning basically treat him like he's not even part of the Jewish community. He's not a Jew, he's an ethnikos. He's a, you know, he's treat him like a Gentile, you might say. Um, and, uh, and then he said, he adds this, Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So here we begin to see the context. Jesus is speaking to who? Here, first of all, we forgot to answer that question. Who's Jesus talking to? The disciples, right? The disciples, the apostles, the ones who would have apostolic authority, the ones to whom God, through the Spirit, would reveal the revelation of Scripture, the ones who would meet and establish the ground rules in the early days of the church, the ones who would assemble in Jerusalem in Acts 15 to make decisions. He's talking about this transitional days of the early church when the apostles would be the ones that would be having to have uh, the authority. Jesus had already said the same thing, by the way, about whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. In chapter 16, that same passage where Peter declares that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that's when Jesus says you are correct, and upon that testimony I will build my church. So the context here is the church wasn't established yet, but Jesus is laying the groundwork for the types of things that these men will do 
in the early days of the church. And remember, Paul later would tell us that the church was founded upon the apostles, meaning their teaching. So when Jesus says here, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, that is not normative for today. This is gospel literature. This isn't something that you and I could say, I bind this and I bind that, and let's all two or three get together and hold hands and bind stuff, because we don't have apostolic authority. We're not the ones that walked and talked with Jesus. He didn't endow us with this type of revelatory uh, power and authority. Uh, but he did uh, with the disciples. And um, so, you know, when he says, uh, you know, if you go back to the original uh, 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 passage that we looked at, verses 19 and 20, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, I think in the immediate context, he's talking about discipline and conflict, but he's moved beyond that in verse 16 to, you know, uh, I mean, in verse 18 uh, to the, the broader concept of apostolic authority and what they say goes because they're speaking the very word of God, right? Paul talks about this a lot in his letters to the Corinthians about his apostolic authority and especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So everything happens in a context and, you know, it's obvious that the, the context here is not necessarily have anything to do with prayer or every believer in the present age being able to, you know, uh, bind things or loose things. Um, uh, and so, uh, so that's kind of the context. Does that make sense? So, Jeff, back to your point. I don't see it's a direct correlation when Jesus says here in, um, in sorry, in, uh, let me find the verse here. Uh, in verse 16, by two or three witnesses, every word will be established. I don't necessarily see that as a connection to them being able to bind stuff. Um, he, wasn't t he wasn't talking only about discipline. He broadens it out, and we know this by comparing Scripture to Scripture, because again, he says the same thing in chapter uh, 16. And assuredly there, in verse 18, is kind of a transitional marker that indicates he's saying, so, so, you know, not only this, or, you know, moreover, or additionally, is the, is the nuance there, whatever you bind on earth, be it a decision about discipline or any other thing that I reveal to you, it's as good as my word. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, not necessarily, but he's speaking to them collectively. So, I'm sorry, I forgot to repeat the question. So, he's, he's, uh, Jeff is commenting that the two or three witnesses still seems to be connected, from, from verse 20, still seems to be connected to the quote, uh, well, we know the two or three witnesses is uh, connected, right? Uh, so, where two or three are gathered in my name seems to be connected, Jeff is saying, to the quote of Deuteronomy where Jesus says, for by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't think Jesus was intending to say that, um, 
that you have to have two or three witnesses to have authority because Paul spoke singularly as an authoritative apostle and so forth. But I think in the context here, you uh, is plural, and so he's talking to them collectively in verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loose in heaven. So he seems to be talking about the, the broader apostolic authority of these men to whom he's speaking. And that's the bigger point here, is that who is Jesus speaking to? We take this passage out of context, and we think it's individual rights of believers, that two or three believers can pray for anything, and God will do it if they, as long as they agree. But if one of you is a little bit secretly thinking about the Cowboys game during the prayer and didn't really pray and agree, then it's not going to happen. And we think in, in more charismatic churches that you know two or three can bind stuff. I bind you here, and I bind you there, and we, we're missing the bigger picture. He's not... Just as the verse we looked at last week, Jeremiah 29, 11, the plans that Jesus, that the prophet is talking about there, giving the message from Yahweh, is are, are not plans for you and me. They're plans for Israel. Well, the you that he's talking about here is the disciples, right? So this really doesn't have anything to do with our ability to, um, to you know, bind and loose things and speak with authority and, and make things have sort of divine sanction upon them, uh, the way he's talking about there. So back to Jeff's point, and leave it to Jeff to, to have such insight that it really makes me kind of challenge what I'm trying to, to think here as a good Berean. Um, so I think in the context, let's put it in, part of the problem is I've got these verses out of order because I was trying to give you the key one and then go back and look at the context. So let's start out in verse 15 and just think our way through the context. Starts out, if a brother sins against you, tell him his fault alone. And if, if, if that doesn't work, take with you two or three witnesses. Clearly, that's un, unambiguous. It's just following the law. You need some witnesses if you're going to further confront this offender, right? Then he goes on and, and, and escalates it further. If that doesn't work, tell it to the entire assembly. And if he still won't hear, then let, let him be like a, a heathen, an ethnikos. And then it just seems like beginning in verse 18 through the rest of this section, he's saying he's giving them sort of even further revelation here about their authority. And again, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, he says the same thing in chapter 16, verse 19. Assuredly, I say to you, disciples, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you that if two of you agree... So that's where the, the issue comes, Jeff. It's sometimes their apostolic authority needs validation, and that validation is going to come from the unity of the group. If two of, of you agree on earth concerning anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So that seems to be speaking about more than simply a ruling on an, an offender because it's like you're asking for God to do something, or you're asking for something to be done, not just asking for a help with making a decision on how to deal with this sinner, this sinning brother. Um, and then for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a maybe a semantic connection between the Old Testament law of two or three witnesses and Jesus' reminder here of the two or three, that it takes two or three in in binding and loosing stuff. So yeah, I, I'm okay with that. Sure. No, no question. Yeah. That, that's the key. So he said, you know, he's with one person. It's not like we have to have two or three to be 
present. That's what I always point out to people when they cite that verse in the context of prayer. You know, well, two or three of us agree, and I'm thinking, you know, and then they say, and so their God is in the midst of us, or wherever two or three are gathered, right? You have, how many times have you heard pe- people get up at the beginning of a service or a gathering of believers, and they'll say, great to see everybody tonight. We know the Lord's here because he promised where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst of them. Well, guess what? God's omnipresent. He was in the room before we got here, so it doesn't matter whether one person showed up or two or three or 300, God was already here. Thank you very much. He's not talking about God's presence. He's talking about God's revelatory authority and power in and through these apostles. Yeah. So, um, take me through the background to bind something. What does that mean? Where did it come from? So, I'm not sure, honestly, what the the question is about binding and loosing. I'm not sure what the Jewish cultural uh, background of that is, but what it meant was to speak authoritatively. That it's like the judge's gavel comes down. This is the ruling. We are speaking with divine authority here. And if you know, if we allow something, then we're allowing it on God's authority. If we don't allow something, it's forbidden on God's authority. So we need to understand that these apostles were the conduits of God's revelation in the same way that the prophets were in the Old Testament. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, you know, David writing in the Psalms and people like that. So uh, it's hard for us to understand 2,000 years later because we have the sum total of the authority. So we don't have to go and, and make an appointment with the apostles and say, give us your ruling on this. Bind it or loose it, right? Give us your ruling. We've got it right here which is why this study is so critical to be able to correctly handle the Word of God. We've got to know how to study it because this is it. Now, some uh, denominations and Christian uh, cultures and so forth in America do believe there is new revelatory information today, and they do believe in apostles, present-day apostles, and they do teach that God can give people messages, you know, like Oral Roberts, you remember years ago, went up on a mountain and he declared God told him if he didn't raise a million dollars for the school, he was going to kill him. I mean, that's pretty motivated. I mean, depending on how well you're liked in your congregation, that could be a pretty good fundraising tool. You know, if I stood up and said, look, God told me you got to give me all your money or God's going to kill me. Well, I mean, that maybe we'd raise our coffers. I don't know. But... Uh, uh, honestly, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah, you just start buying the coffin. Thank you, thank you for that vote of confidence. I've always been afraid to try it, just because I'm afraid nobody would give anything. Like, yeah, we'll find another preacher. Go for it. Um, but anyway, we don't believe that can happen today because God has given us all we need for you know the, His special revelation is closed with the canon, and so. But so I just but I wanted to point out that some people do apply this to today. But we need to understand that that first century, while the Scripture was still being unveiled, and the Spirit was still leading people to write from 44 A.D., 14 year, or 11 years into the church age, when Galatians was written, 44 to... Uh, actually, that was James. James, the Lord's brother, probably wrote the first book of the New Testament in 44 to 47. And then Paul wrote his first letter in 48, Galatians. But anyway, 15 roughly years or so into the church age, God started unveiling through the written word, and it didn't stop until 95, 96 A.D. with Revelation. And then it was done. So we don't have anybody that can stand up and say, hey, I was in a meeting with God the other day, and he told me this. You know, take a note, right? This, it's all right here. Yeah, Paul. Uh, that concept of more than one witness or two witnesses or more, isn't that tied back to the, the law 
in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, yeah. single witness shall not rise up against the man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we actually, I, I actually cited both of those. It's, it's in lots of places. Deuteronomy 19.15 is I, one I mentioned. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Um, so yeah, he, Jesus was simply speaking to a Jewish audience, a Jewish culture. The church wasn't in existence yet. Um, and, and he was telling the disciples that, you know, just as the law says, you know, you need to make sure that you, you're protected here by having some witnesses. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think that kind of apostolic authority will be reintroduced in the tribulation? Because, you know, like in Joel, it's talking about the, the old men, the young men, you know, prophesying and seeing visions and dreaming dreams. That's a great question. So Jeffrey said in the tribulation, will the uh, apostolic authority, is what you said, be reinstituted? I wouldn't say it that way. Uh, we will see new revelatory era happening um, in the book. in the what's that book. yeah like the little book that we read about in Revelation 10 but there are lots of examples in the in the in during the tribulation period so the church which is the present age ends at the rapture and we've talked about that in our Sunday morning series and then as with every dispensation there's always a transitional time and things get weird if you want to for that's a technical word that's a greek word it means weird but anyway um uh you know so we are going to see as we lead up into the kingdom age that's that seven year period all kinds of new revelation you've got 144,000 missionaries that are supernaturally set apart by god you've got um, the little scroll you've got angels speaking the revelation of god flying around and making announcements from heaven so absolutely we'll see it's not so much an apostolic authority because ap apostleship is a, unique to the church age um, but you will definitely see new and additional revelation beyond what god has already revealed to us in his word during the tribulation period but not today but not today does that make sense yeah. So you comment there, and then you're also referring to like the moral robbers to the mountaintop, thinking, well, do you think that God then speaks to us as lay people you know, in the valley and not the mountain? <laughs> as for my whole life savings here, you didn't. But, uh, you know, don't you think that God does speak to us through the Holy Spirit? To, you know, and that's why we pray, right? Yeah, so great question, and uh, I'm really glad you asked that because we're going to get into this in weeks to come when we talk about uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the doctrine of illumination. Uh, but the question is, um, so do you believe God speaks to us today? And I'm summarizing, but in if so, in what sense, right? Not in Scripture. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think we have to be. It comes down to uh, how we, what language we use to to describe what you're talking about there. But so, when we say, "Does God speak today?" Well, He does, but through His Word. So God does not speak in such a way that we have to open up the canon and add a 67th book of the Bible. Okay. So, but often we will say, the Lord spoke to my heart, 
Or I've even said, as I get up to preach in church or in conferences, I'll say, you know, the Lord put this word on my heart. But what do I mean by that? Uh, again, that's our kind of our colloquial way in Christian evangelical America of saying, the Holy Spirit led me, right? So uh, I absolutely believe the Holy Spirit can uh, do amazing things in our hearts and minds. Remember, in the Bible, heart and mind are the same thing. So he can, he can convict, he can encourage, he can strengthen, he can lead, he can guide, uh, he can protect. So, you know, you're, you have an overwhelming sense that you should do something or shouldn't do something. That's the Holy Spirit, right? Often. Um, and so, you know, I've talked about many times, if the Lord puts somebody on your heart, and you, you feel like you need to stop in and check on them or send them a text or give them a call. Uh, and it turns out that that was very encouraging. Um, in fact, let me give you an example that just happened to me today. And I, I, I thought about trying to find a way to bring this in tonight. And then I thought, no, I'll just wait and share it when the time is right. Well, the time is right. So I'm going to share it right now. So I was uh, working this afternoon on preparation for another speaking deal. And uh, it occurred to me, I wanted to remember the specific name of the church that we went to when I was a boy where I got saved. I remember the incident very well. I've shared it often. My dad led me uh, to the Lord on the top bunk of my bed on a Sunday night after service. I remember, I was pretty sure we were in West Virginia where we lived for three years when I was a young boy. I was six years old when I got saved. But I just, I wanted to for some reason it just popped into my mind I wanted to make sure I really had that detail down so I texted my mom and dad and said do you what was the name of the church where we were when I got saved and so they responded well it was Bible Baptist Temple in Stonewood West Virginia and uh, so then I looked it up online found that the church is still in existence and my dad uh, told me some additional details about that that experience and he said uh, you know we were only at that church about two years we started when they were meeting in a house and, uh, and by the way that reminded me when he said that I can picture sitting on chairs in a big living room when I was probably by that time only five and um, anyway and he said and then we were there when we broke ground and helped them build the first building and uh, and uh, and so, and you were, and he, and he further added, and you, JB, were the first person ever baptized in that new building, because you got, you trusted Christ at age six, and you were baptized. So anyway, it was really neat, kind of going down that nostalgic road, and thinking about it, but having called up the church on the website, and seeing that it was still there, and it was even bigger, they built another building, and I, something, and I believe, back to your question, it was the Lord, or the Holy Spirit, put on my heart, I ought to reach out to the pastor and just to encourage him that, you know, here's another example of someone who as a young boy, you know, felt a convicting call of the Holy Spirit in his life to be saved, knew he needed a Savior, trusted Christ as a result of the ministry of that church. And they had, my parents had given me the name of the pastor that was there uh, back then. And uh, so anyway, uh, I, I called the church, not expecting to get expecting to get a secretary and trying to think of what can I say that doesn't make me sound like a nutcase. Um, but sure enough, the pastor answered. And I had a 30-minute conversation with him. And, and the reason the Lord put that on my heart and the reason I wanted to call is I wanted to be an encouragement to him. I thought, 
it would be, if I was a pastor of a church, it would be encouraging to me to know that, I mean, I am the pastor of a church. <laughs> Sorry. My, sometimes things, things come out wrong. Um, it's like the time I mentioned on the radio, my five kids or something, which we really have six. And so my kids have never forgotten that and always wondered which one I was leaving out. But anyway, so, you know, I, I meant if I had been pastor of a long time, like this guy had been, I, I would, I would kind of want to know a story about how the church, God used the church. And so anyway, I called him, we had a long discussion. I told him I've been in ministry 32 years and told him about Not By Works and Plum Creek Chapel and shared with him some of the things my dad had said. And he said, yeah, that pastor, he's... He's still alive. He's 85 years old. He's still preaching and different, you know, traveling and preaching. And, uh, and he said, in fact, you know, the building that you were baptized in when the, the building was just finished and you were the first one baptized in that baptistry, he said, we've since remodeled that. This pastor, by the way, has been there 40 years. He came right after, you know, we left. He said, we've since built another sanctuary. But he said, my office sits exactly where the baptistry was where you were baptized as a young six-year-old boy so anyway and he was so encouraged and he took down my name he said i'm going to share this with the church on sunday to let them know because he said we just had our 50th anniversary as a church and we invited a lot of people back and you remember you know it's not like i was raised there and and as a young teenager surrendered to the ministry there or something we were only there for two years in that church my parents lived in west virginia for three years but they went to another church for one of those years. And we were only there for two years, and God used that divine appointment to, to happen to be where I was when the Spirit got a hold of me, and I trusted Christ, was baptized in that church. And they didn't, you know, 50 years later, or 40, whatever it is, I don't forget how old I am, 53, I was 6, so 47 years later. Um, man, you're requiring me to do math in the midst of all this. Um, uh, they're not going to know, so I just wanted him to know. But he said, oh, that was so encouraging. He said, at our anniversary, uh, we invited back a bunch of people, and we mentioned that we had 50, through the years, we've had 50 young men that have surrendered to the ministry and are serving the Lord in ministry. And he goes, I'm going to have to tell them now we have 51. And, uh, and I said, I bet you've got more than that, because there might have been a lot of other people who came through the church younger, and the Lord impacted them, maybe got saved there like I did, but then later on were called into ministry, and you have no way to know. But anyway, all that to say... That, I would say the Lord spoke to me and told me to call, and it was validated by the fact that it, we just had a great conversation, and it was so neat swapping stories. And, and, but what we mean by that is not God unveiled new authoritative revelation. It's more the work of the Holy Spirit is the way I would say it. So, you know, we say God spoke to me. N nothing wrong with that. I'm not legalistic about that. But it's probably better to say you know, the Spirit of God impressed on my heart, or the Spirit of God led me to, to make that call, right? So God does not speak today in the sense of revelatory information on par with the Bible, the way, you know, Oral Roberts or some people say, God, you know, the Bible 3,800 times says, thus saith the Lord. We can't speak with that same level of authority. Uh, but we can certainly sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, uh, follow His convicting work, and leadership and hopefully answer that call when he tells us to do something and if we don't we quench the spirit and we might have missed an opportunity right and someday in heaven maybe we'll we'll understand more about it does that does that make sense yeah, yeah. so this was a good uh, you know good kind of uh, d discussion you know we took a lot of time but it it's all based upon the fact that there's a lot more going on here in Matthew 18 15 to 20 
these six verses, than simply people saying, well, as long as we're agreeing in prayer and there's two or more of us, God's going to do it. It's not saying that. And there's also a lot more going on here than suggesting that somehow if we agree, we can bind and loose things on earth. Uh, I think in the context, it's clearly talking about conflict resolution and discipline within the assembly, which at the time was the synagogue, and it's talking about the process to deal with that wisely. Um, and then it's, it also is Jesus speaking to the apostles, the future apostles, about the authority that they will have uh, once the church age begins. And the same thing, we could look at the uh, Upper Room Discourse, which happened not long after this, recorded in John 13 to 17, where Jesus makes a lot of promises to the eleven. By that time, Judas had been exposed and left uh, the meeting. And Jesus makes a lot of promises to them that we often sort of apply to our, you know, selves. But if we look at them in context, it's better to understand them as promises to the disciples. For example, he said... Um, you know, and I think it's in John 16, something to the effect of um, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance everything I say to you. Well, then you've got John, the apostle who was sitting right next to Jesus, the apostle whom Jesus loved, 60 years later, writing the epistles of John in which he talks about abiding in Christ. Well, what did Jesus say in the upper room 60 years earlier to those 11? Abide in me, abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit, and you'll be my disciples, and I'm going to be gone shortly, but you need to stick close to me, you know, and, 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 and continue to remain in close fellowship to me. That's what abide means. It's the word meno. So it's just a we see in Scripture a perfect example of Jesus promising something to specific individuals in context, and then, guess what? The Holy Spirit brought to John's remembrance so he could write the, the epistles of John. So... Uh, that's what I think is going on here. So now we know not to use this passage out of context to say, oh, as long as we're agreeing in prayer, you know, it's not about prayer. There are plenty of teaching in God's Word about prayer, but this is not uh, one of it. Any other comments before we, should I say, get started? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not at all. So the question is, is it wrong to apply Scripture out of context? In essence, that's what you're asking. Um, and, you know, how much is, was written for Israel? How much was written for us? Look, all of it was written for us, right? The whole Bible was written for us. We have everything we need for life and godliness right here. But there is a difference, and we're going to get into this in much greater detail. So if it feels like you're drinking from a fire hydrant right now, just kind of soak it in and we'll, we'll, we'll dissect it a little bit uh, more slowly as we work through it. But the big point is there's a difference between meaning and significance. Meaning and application. There is one of the 24 rules of interpretation is called the singularity of meaning. Every passage has one and only one meaning. God is not schizophrenic. When he wrote what he wrote, he wrote intending to communicate one thing. And it's our job to handle the word correctly and cut straight to that meaning. And then having understood it in its proper literal, grammatical, historical context, we then apply it, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. So you could read the same verse 
50 times in your life and the Spirit of God use it differently each time to really lead and speak to your heart. But that doesn't mean it's got 50 meanings. It's got one meaning. So uh, take the passages to Israel, for example. When I read, say, Jeremiah 29, 11, where I know that God, God says to Israel, I, have, I know the plans I have for you, uh, plans to prosper you and do you good and not harm and so forth. I don't have it memorized, but that's the gist of it. Um, we need to understand the meaning there is that God is telling Israel in the midst of their captivity not to worry. Trust him, even though it looks bleak, he's not forsaking his promises and he's going to give them the kingdom that he promised them someday. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, in any number of ways. First of all, it reminds us that the God we serve is a covenant-keeping God. Amen? And this is an example of that with his chosen nation, Israel. It reminds us that God's promises can be counted on. It reminds us that the prophecies of Scripture were not uh, set aside. It reminds us that uh, God is in control of the planets. Because remember, he said, as long as there's a sun, moon, and stars in the heavens, uh, these my covenant with you will not be broken. So there's lots of th things that we can learn in terms of the significance of what it means that then apply uh, to us. So a lot of the issues that we run into in interpretation really come down to uh, understanding the difference between what does it mean now that I know what it means, let me apply that to my life. And we love to short-circuit that process. We love to just uh, cut straight to, okay, what does it mean to me, right? So most Bible studies today in this postmodern church age are a matter of people sitting in a circle reading a verse and then going around the circle and everyone says, well, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to me? Well, that's not Bible study. Bible study is, what does it mean? And then... You can say, well, what's the significance of that to you? How, do you? how would you apply that in your life? What does that tell you about God? What are some observations you can make from the meaning? So back to the question about God speaking to us, it's, it's somewhat semantic. So in the same way that we often say the Lord spoke to me or God said to me or the, uh, God gave me a word, when what we really mean theologically, whether we realize it or not, is not that God is giving new revelation and speaking to us per se, but the Spirit of God is leading us and impressing us and guiding us. It may sound like a subtle difference, but it's a significant difference because if we open up the canon and say God can still speak today, well, then what's the arbiter? I mean, you know, who can, you know, and I've had this, this discussion many times in the classroom with my 12 years in academics, we often had uh, people from a variety of theological and church backgrounds, and so it was always really challenging and enjoyable at the same time to talk to charismatics who would say, uh, you, know, I you know, I just disagree, uh, Dr. Hickson. God told me such and such, and I know it was God, and it was new revelation, and it's just as authoritative as what God's Word said. And I would always say, okay, well, so say you, but uh, God spoke to me uh, last night, and he told me I should flunk you in this class. So how, now what do we do, right? We, we have no ultimate authority to which we can appeal where I can validate that what I got was direct revelation from God any more than you can. So it wasn't that the student was wrong. It was just the way uh, that student was interpreting what happened to her was not in accord with Scripture. So we always interpret our experience in light of Scripture, 
not scripture in light of our experience. So something happened to her for sure. She felt uh, the spirit of God. We know from scriptures what it was, putting something on her heart and really motivating her to do something. I don't even remember the details, but to say that that was the same thing as God's revelation in His Word that crosses a doctrinal line and, and theological line that the Bible is very clear about. This is it. This is the standard. So that's why we started out two sessions ago talking about why do you believe what you believe? And remember, one of those was uh, experiential, or what did I call it? Sociological, I think. I can't, philosophical maybe it was. Nope, I got it now. It was psychological <laughs> influence. I knew I'd get there. I was running through my chart in my mind. Psychological influences on our belief system, uh, such as experiences and, you know, those types of things. And those experiences can be a great teacher. Even Proverbs tells us that the ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise, Proverbs 15, 31, but only to the extent that we interpret our experiences through the lens of Scripture. Because as you remember from that chart, if you haven't watched that first video yet, go back and watch part one of this series, uh, only the Bible is our ultimate valid basis for truth. So just like we might say, God spoke to me versus the Spirit impressed upon me, and the same thing, we, we might say, well, here's what this means to me. What we really mean is, here's the significance of this verse in my life. The meaning is not individual. Meaning is absolute. It either means this or it doesn't. It has one meaning. When the quill hit the sheepskin, what did the almighty creator intend to communicate to his creation? And that's the task for the Bible student, to study and understand the Bible in its correct context. Then, having determined what it means, um, or discovered is a better word, God determined what it meant, he's the author, but having discovered what it means, we then say, now how, what, is, what, is, what do I do with this? How does this, what's the so what question, right? Uh, wh how does this impact my life? Um, because the goal of Bible study is a changed life. That's the goal of it. So, yeah. So, is there, it sounds like there is appropriately no apostolic authority honor to death. Okay, that, that pass with the apostles. Okay, in the finishing of the camp. Yeah. So yet we have Catholic religion, some segments of Protestant religion, basically being apostolic, that's what they call it, giving the word or changing the word and that kind of thing. How, how can they even argue that position with what the Bible says? Yeah, so the question is about apostolic authority and how apostolic authority ended with the completion of the canon at the end of the first century. And yet today we have many traditions within the Christian faith that use the term apostle and that even have apostles. Um, so uh, how do we explain that or what, what do we do with that? Well, first of all, the Roman Catholic Church is in a class by itself. Okay, It's apostate. It's not teaching the biblical teaching of God's Word. It has three authorities as opposed to one. The Bible, which they mean their Bible, which includes non-inspired books. The church, meaning the councils and the creeds, and the Pope. Right? Those are their authorities. And so it's a three-legged stool. And, and, and so they're not based a religion based solely upon God's Word. They believe they that the Peter was the first pope, and, the, and, the, and the, every pope after him has the authority to speak 
with infallibility and you know divine inspiration. Um, we know that's not true from God's word because every human being is fallen. Only perfect human being ever lived was Jesus Christ, and we killed him, right? And he rose again, and now he's sitting at the right hand of God. But to claim that any human being can somehow speak with divine authority on level with God, and there are many other problems with Roman Catholic teaching. They elevate Mary to a level of divinity. They believe Mary was born of a virgin herself, so she's godlike, all of that. Uh, so setting aside their understanding of all this within the christian uh evangelical church yeah you do have churches that use the term apostle and like i said many of them actually believe that their leaders uh, men and in many cases women they believe are apostles who have a direct line to god and they stand up and they're not expositing the word exposit means explain that's what we believe that the job of the pastor is is to teach the word of god they're actually standing up and giving revelatory messages. Okay? So we would just disagree with that. Um, now, there are some places where you'll see the term apostle used, and they don't mean it the same way the Bible meant it in Scripture. So I'm thinking of the spiritual gifts. Sometimes you'll see spiritual gift inventories where you can take these uh, instruments and, and answer a bunch of questions, and it'll help you d determine kind of what your spiritual gifts are. And so if you look at the passages in the Bible in the New Testament on spiritual gifts, uh, so that's Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, those four passages, and you take the lists of the spiritual gifts that are listed there and you collate them and take out the duplicates, you come up with 18 unique spiritual gifts that God has made available uh, through the Spirit in the church. I believe, and I've, I've taught on this and written about it, that nine of them, of the 18, were revelatory in nature and were done away with after the Bible was complete. So that leaves us with nine spiritual gifts uh, today. That's my understanding. But one of the gifts, one of the nine revelatory ones that I believe is no longer in vogue today is the gift of apostleship. But some spiritual gift inventories will use all 18, but they sort of redefine them. So they say, if you have strong leadership skills and you're uh, you know, good at, at preaching the word of God, then you have the gift of apostleship. And they don't mean you're an apostle receiving divine revelation from God. They just mean you're a good teacher and a good leader. Um, I think that's unfortunate. It's confusing. It's not probably the best way to delineate it. But I, I have less of a problem with that than I do people claiming revelatory ability today as an apostle. Does that make sense? It does. I was just thinking about like when denominations go in session and they make adjustments to God's word, or they without the without clarity from God, they go, "Well, this is really what God means." And yeah. you know, so that's just so that's they have no apostolic authority. Absolutely not. So. Yeah, so, you're, so the question was, you know, kind of uh, adding on here that what about the denominations that the, the, the denominational leaders will meet in session and give issue new decrees, like suddenly homosexuality is okay and transgendered is okay and priests can be homosexual and, you know, those preachers and so forth. Well, all of that, that's dealing with the apostate church. That's, that's not even, they, they've denied the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and they've denied a bunch of biblical truths and they're just basically nothing more than a religious social club so they 
I don't, I don't consider that usurping apostolic authority. I mean, I guess technically it is. They're claiming to be God, but they don't even claim themselves that this is something God has told them, at least not that I've seen. Maybe they do in some cases, but mostly it's they don't even think they need to check with God first. It's just we are the ones that make the decisions, and this is our new decree. It's now okay. And so that would be mainstream denominations like Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, ELCA, or uh, PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, or United Methodist Church, or Episcopal Church. Um, and again, it doesn't mean that everybody in those churches agrees. I think, you know, the problem is the further you get from the pew, the more liberal denominations become. So it always starts out in the institutions where they're training up their preachers and, you know, in academia. And so academia goes liberal. Suddenly the people they're producing are liberal. Then the people in the pulpit are liberal. And then their parishioners become liberal. So working backwards, you know, you've got some 80-year-old United Methodists who, apart from not necessarily understanding fully the doctrine of grace and that salvation is purely a free gift, they nevertheless still believe in the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and the inerrancy of God's word and the Bible as our only standard. And by and large, they're, they're you know, godly people. They can't stand the fact that the Methodist Church is okay with homosexuality and transgenderism and those kinds of things. And that's because, you know, what they grew up in was, I mean, true to God's word, except, again, for their understanding of, of the gospel of grace. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's any number of applications where we could see people speaking authoritatively that in conflict to God's word. And that's why it's so critical that we use the Bible as the only lens, the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. So, um, yeah. Uh, one, one of the things that comes to my mind is the new apostolic reformation. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, the New Apostolic Reformation, that's more a factor of just bad hermeneutics, bad Bible study methods. It's not so much that they have abandoned the authority of the Bible, they're just mishandling the Bible and therefore teaching, you know, this, this uh, theonomic ethics and this post-millennialism uh, and re it's called reconstructionism that if we just get that uh, good enough, then Christ will come back kingdom now mentality right so um, and that has made a resurgence by the way so in the history of theology you had during most of the you know say time from uh, the late you know say the 18th century or let's say from the reformation on you had people mistakenly thinking that you know with all these revivals and the, the you know positive things happening, you know, the Industrial Revolution, the technical, or the, uh, uh, you know, uh, Age of Reason, and people, you know, new advancements, and we're inventing penicillin, and, you know, cars, and engines, all, and things were just seemed like, wow, the world's at our fingertips, we can do anything we want, and that kind of bled into the way Christians read the Bible, and so they were post-millennial, meaning if we can just get things good enough, and better, and better, and better, Christ will come down to climax it all at the end, right? But that whole view was utterly destroyed by World War One and World War Two, and people realized the world is not getting better. It's a bad place, and this so so you never really had 
you know, for the for most of my life, it's been, you know, premillennial and amillennial have been the two approaches. That there is no earthly kingdom. All of those promises were, you know, just made up, and they're and God changed His mind or whatever reason they give. They're not literal, and uh, so for so stop looking for the kingdom. This is the best it's going to get is the church. Or people were, as we believe the Bible teaches, premillennial, that we believe Christ is going to come back someday and then he'll establish the kingdom. Uh, that was it. But in recent years, people like Pat Robertson and others of his ilk have really popularized, once again, this reconstructionist mindset that if we can just elect enough Christians, that we can change the world, and then when we change it enough, Christ will come back. And that's just not biblical at all. So, Yeah, Jeff. <laughs> transmillennials. I'm going to use that. Next time I'm at a prophecy conference, I'm going to talk about transmillennialism. All right. So with that introduction, no, this is a great. I really love this dialogue, love the discussion. Hopefully it's, there's been some, um, you know, in, in, encouraging and edifying things here. Um, but I was really looking forward to getting to what we were going to get to, but we will save that... Uh, uh, for next time, next Wednesday, um, and uh, what I was, what I want to just kind of tease you with to look forward to next time. We're going to talk about two, the, the two different primary schools of thought and how to study the Bible, and then I'm going to get into the five steps in the Bible study process to kind of lay the groundwork. Uh, so we believe in the literal grammatical historical approach. It's the way language is in, in any language is intended to be understood. Um, what does it say? What's the context? What's the subject? What's the predicate? What's the, you know, all of those uh, things. By the way, my daughter asked me when I was taking her to volleyball practice earlier this week, she said, I was trying to ask mom this, and, and she didn't know, which with that kind of a setup, you know I'm really excited because here's my chance to outsmart my wife, which is extremely rare. But she said, you know, what were the nine parts of speech? And she could only think of eight, and I was able to think of the ninth one. So anyway. Uh, but that's what that's what understanding words means. It's looking at them grammatically and syntactically, and and, and looking at when you see a pronoun, what's the antecedent of that pronoun, right? Um, and so uh, we're going to get into what that means and what the implications of it are uh, for each of the two schools of thought starting next week. And with that, we'll call it a wrap because I do want to stick to our promised time frame of one hour. But happy to stick around and talk and visit as needed. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.